will pardon from God of his sins. When we come to faith in Jesus Christ, our sins before the Father are forgiven and we escape the penalty of our sins. But the tendency towards sin still persists in the life of a believer. And if you've been a Christian for a short time or a long time, you know that as a follower of Jesus Christ, the tendency towards sin still persists in you. It's still alive and well in your life. And if we fall back into certain sin patterns, and sometimes true believers do, then usually there are one of two results. One result is that we begin to doubt that we were ever Christians in the first place. We begin to doubt our salvation. And that's what was happening with this young man. He called himself an ex-pornographer. He had fallen into the sin of pornography, and it was causing him to doubt his salvation. Sin makes us doubt that we are saved if we persist in it, right? And then there's another result. Uh, We may find that we actually fear our heavenly father and that our heavenly father is mad at us and those two feelings may come together we may doubt our salvation we may find that even though we know that we were born again at one time when we sin we're afraid God's mad at us and I know that some of you here in the auditorium can relate to either of those or both uh, as a result of sin and so let me just answer those two problems really quickly. Um, Basically, other scriptures other than 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, which we're going to be studying in a moment, deal with the first question. If after I become a Christian, I sin, do I lose my salvation? And I'll give you an example of what I mean. If you've got your Bible open to 1 John or you've scrolled there in an electronic format, Uh, Look back to John's gospel and chapter 10. Jesus addresses this very question in John 10, 24 to 30. And so I'm going to read that, and I want you to listen carefully to what Jesus himself says. In verse 24, we learn that the Jews had gathered around him, and they were saying to him, how long will you keep us in suspense if you were the Christ? Tell us plainly. Now, let me just say something about that. He'd already told them and shown them multiple times that he was the Christ, but they were still asking him that question. Verse 25, Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me. Then he says, but you do not believe because you're not of my sheep. Now, listen to these following verses. I'm in John 10, the gospel. Verse 27, Jesus says very clearly, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Now that's an assurance verse. If you are one of Christ's sheep, you know his voice and you follow him and you've been given eternal life and you will never perish 
and no one can snatch you out of his hand. But then he goes on and he says this, my father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the father are one. Now I sent that passage to that young man in the Philippines along with one other and you can jot this down and look at it yourself when you have some time. But if you look at Romans chapter 8, verse 28 to 34, Paul teaches the same thing, that those who are Christ can never be separated from his love or from a relationship with him ever, ever again. And so, if after you're born again, you sin or even slip into a sin pattern, does that cost you your salvation? Do you lose it? According to Jesus' testimony, absolutely not. According to Paul's testimony, absolutely not. And let me just give you an example. An example from our life today would be this. Uh, Let's say you have a very, very rich set of parents or a very, very, very wealthy uncle. Let's say that this person is a billionaire and they will you an inheritance that after they die you will inherit their billions of dollars. And everything's legal, and they pass away, and you inherit their billions of dollars. Their billions of dollars are awarded to your account, and now you have become a billionaire based on their billions that you didn't work to accumulate, but that they worked to accumulate, and they've given you that inheritance. Once you have that inheritance, can anybody take that inheritance from you? No, they can't. Now, you can squander it, but you can't lose it. And that's the way that it is with us when we've been born again by the Spirit of God, when we belong to Christ, when we put our faith in Christ. We are given an inheritance, Peter says in 1 Peter that is incorruptible and undefiled and that doesn't fade away and it's reserved in heaven for us and we can't lose it. Now, we may squander it and many a Christian has squandered it, but we can't lose it. And so that's what I shared back to this gentleman living in the Philippines. But what about the second result? The feeling that God, our heavenly father, is mad at us, angry with us, Every time we sin, and especially if we fall into a pattern of sin for a time, is God our Heavenly Father really mad at us? If I'm a true believer and I sin, is he upset with me? Can I become a recipient of his wrath? That's another question that people that have been born again have sometimes. And our text for today provides an answer as well as the solution to that dilemma. So our text today, again, is 1 John chapter 2, and I'm going to look at verses 1 and 2, but I'm going to focus down on the second half of verse 1 and all of verse 2. Let me read it for you. Follow along with me. Very short section of Scripture, jam-packed with meaning. Jam-packed with meaning. John wrote, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And we talked about that. And then he says, if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. The word of the Lord. This text gives us the answer to this question. 
If as a believer I sin or maybe fall into a sin pattern for a time, is God the Father angry at me? Is he mad at me? Even though I belong to him. Now you may recall that for two Sundays now, we've talked about how one goes about keeping their heart with God. Do you remember? And we've talked about how one goes about keeping their heart with God in order to maintain a state of assurance that we are still Christians. And to that end, I gave three practices built on three words. Do you remember those three words? Confess, resist, and rest. Okay, that's right. Those are the three words. And we talked about confession. One of the marks of a true believer is confession of sin, not denial of it. If you're truly a follower of Jesus Christ, you're going to own the fact that you're sinful, you're not going to deny it, and your practice is going to be to confess it. Often to God, most of the time to God, sometimes to other people. Now, in addition to that, another mark of a true believer is resisting, resisting sin and not complying with it. That's what's spoken of when John says, I'm writing these things to you that you may not sin. That's what we talked about last Sunday. We talked about that in some detail. But what if we, a true Christian, do sin? And we will. We will. No question about it. What if we do? Well, that's our third word, rest. And rest relates to what John says in verse 1b and 2. If anyone sins... We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. Now, 1 John chapter 1, 1, 1b and 2 is nothing less than a call to true Christians to rest in something. What are we called to rest in? How can we rest if sometimes we sin? We are called to rest in the completed, the finished work of Jesus Christ for us. And we're called to rest in his ongoing work for us. Christ has a completed work. Christ has an ongoing work in my life, in your life. That's what we're called to rest in. Christ's completed work and Christ's ongoing work for us as believers. And this statement actually breaks pretty neatly into three parts. And so I want you to jot these three parts down. They're all in chapter 2, verse 1b through verse 2. And what these verses tell us is what we have, and it's important that we know what we have, and then the verses tell us who he is, And then the verses tell us what he does and has done. That's our outline this morning. What we have, who he is, what he does. And to keep our hearts with God and maintain assurance that we are truly Christians, even though we sin and even though we sometimes fall into a pattern of sin, we are called to rest in those truths. And as we rest in those truths, we'll find that we have assurance of salvation and we keep our hearts focused on God. So let's unpack those three. Uh, The first truth Christians are called to rest in 
is the truth that if we sin, we have an advocate with the Father. We have an advocate with the Father. We have a go-between, if you will. We have someone that interposes or that is interposed between us and the Father. Some of you might not know for sure what an interposer is. Uh, in the game of chess, uh, you can take a piece and interpose it between uh, one chess piece and the other and protect a certain chess piece. Uh, we have an advocate with the Father, someone that has interposed between us and the Father. Now, what is an advocate according to the New Testament? Let me explain it to you. Uh, the word advocate is a translation of a certain Greek word. Now, that Greek word is parakletos. Parakletos, or we could say paraclete. And this word is actually used four times in John's gospel. And it's used one time in 1 John. So what is a parakletos? What is an advocate? Well, in the Greek world, this word spoke of someone who spoke on behalf of someone that's been accused. It was a person that spoke on behalf of someone that had been accused. Not like a defense attorney. That wasn't the sense of the word in the first century. Rather, it was like a friend or a patron. A friend or a patron who came along and spoke on behalf of someone who had been accused. So when John applies this word here, what he's saying is that when we sin as believers, Jesus is the patron, Jesus is the friend that speaks on our behalf to the Father. He is our advocate with the Father. And so every time you as a believer sin, and that would mean probably quite often, because if you're honest with yourself, as I have to be honest with myself, it's so easy to sin, isn't it? Even though we're born again, then we've got this advocate, Jesus Christ, that speaks up to the Father every time. He's our advocate. And one of the old ancient commentators that I like to read is a man named John Calvin, and he has some interesting things to say about this particular concept. So let me read to you what he said. Calvin, in his commentary, says this, quote, Jesus appears before God, Jesus appears before God for the purpose of exercising toward us the power and the effectiveness of his sacrifice. And then he says it more simply. He says, to make this more easily understood, Christ's intercession is the continual application of his death to our salvation. The reason God does not impute our sins to us is because he looks upon Christ, our advocate. You follow what he's saying? Now let me read that last part again. To make this more easily understood, Christ's intercession is the continual application of his death to our salvation. The reason God does not impute our sins to us is because he looks upon Christ, the intercessor, or he looks upon Christ, our advocate. Now, Calvin is speaking about 
the ongoing work of Jesus on our behalf. You remember I said earlier, there's a finished work of Christ and an ongoing work of Christ? Let me tell you what the finished work of Christ is. 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, after having lived an absolutely perfect life where he kept God's law perfectly, externally and internally, every day, all the time, 24-7, willingly offered himself as a sacrifice to God to pay the cost of God's law for those who could not obey God perfectly. He died on the cross to pay the penalty for your sin and mine if we're believers. And then he rose again from the dead. That's the finished work of Christ. Now let me share something with you. I was born in 1954. Some of you were born earlier than that, and many of you much later than that. So I could say it like this. I was born 1,954 years after Jesus died. Obviously, the years are not exact. But I was born 1,954 years after Jesus died. Guess what? All of my sins had been atoned for on the cross of Christ 1,954 years before I was ever born. And when Jesus said, it is finished, that in part was what he was talking about. And that applies to you if you're a Christian. So take whatever year you were born, and that's how long ago Jesus had already died on the cross for your sins. Now, as we live through our lives... We come to a place where the Holy Spirit begins to convict us of our sins and our wrongness with God, and we hear the gospel or we read the good news that Jesus died for us, and we put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's when Jesus' finished work on the cross becomes actualized in our actual life, but his work dying for us and rising for us happened 2,000 years ago. Does that make sense? What about his ongoing work? That's what Calvin's talking about. Christ intercedes for us before the Father continually, and that's a continual application of his death for our salvation. So when you woke up this morning and you committed sin in your mind, in your heart, with your lips, however you committed it, and you are a true Christian, Jesus Christ, your advocate, was continually applying his death 2,000 years ago to your account so that it didn't compromise your relationship with the Father. That's what it means when John says, if we sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Now, we can rest in that. We can rest in that. And the devil comes along and tries to trip us up and makes us doubt who we are and what we've got. But when we keep our hearts focused on this truth, then we can rest in it and our assurance of salvation is maintained and we keep our hearts with God, right? Uh, And you know what? That's the gospel. Uh, As I said before, I'll say again, you and I are not and can never be perfectly righteous in ourselves, but Jesus Christ, despite the fact that we break God's law every day, 
died for us and rose again on our behalf, right? That's great. So that's the first truth in here, what we have. Now, after pointing us to what we have, John then tells us who the advocate is. He tells us who he is. And this is really, really beautiful. Who is he? Who is the advocate? Well, he's none other than Jesus Christ, the righteous. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. That's who our advocate is. And what John is focusing on is the fact that it is the one and only person who has acted righteously every day, all the time, in every way, shape, and form, who has ever lived since Adam and Eve brought sin into the human race. Um, The only one that's acted righteously is the Lord Jesus Christ, and he's the one who now stands in the presence of the Father to speak, get this, on behalf of those who have not acted righteously. So you and I don't act righteously all the time. Jesus acted righteously all the time. He stands in the Father's presence to intercede, to plead for those of us who have not acted righteously. And that's the gospel. That's the gospel. And one of the Psalms that brings this home to me and how significant this is, is actually the 15th Psalm. So keep your finger in 1 John. I want you to look back at Psalm 15. Psalm 15 is a wonderful psalm, and it's also a depressing psalm, (laughs) if we're honest with ourselves. So let me share with you what Psalm 15 says. Listen to these words really quickly. Um, In my Bible, there is a subheading added by the translators that tells what this psalm is about. And what my Bible says the psalm is about is it's a description of a citizen of Zion. Okay? Now, when I read this psalm, well, I'll tell you what it makes me think when I read it. Listen to what the psalm says. O Lord, who may abide in your tent, who may dwell in your holy hill? He who walks with integrity and works righteousness and speaks truth in his heart. He does not slander with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a reprobate is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord. He swears to his own hurt and does not change. He does not put out his money at interest, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things will never be shaken. You grasp the magnitude of what that psalm is saying? Now, if I lay this psalm down next to my life and I'm honest with myself about all these qualities, I have to honestly admit that I've not walked in all these qualities always throughout my life. Do you think? That would say to me that I can't be a citizen of Zion. (laughs) I can't be a citizen of the kingdom of God. Do you know who has fulfilled all this? Jesus Christ. In every area that I have failed, Jesus Christ has succeeded in terms of walking in the truths of this psalm. 
And Jesus Christ is the ultimate citizen of Zion. He's the ultimate citizen of the kingdom of God. He's the king of the kingdom. Now, that's where the gospel comes in. Because when I, one who fails to walk in all those things that Psalm 15 lays down, puts my faith in Christ, who has fulfilled all those things that Psalm 15 puts down, because of my faith, Christ's righteousness is counted to me. And God declares me right. And he declares me righteous. That's marvelous. Absolutely marvelous. And now, he's the one who stands in the presence of the Father to speak on behalf of those who have not acted righteously. So what we have then as Christians, when we do sin, is an advocate with the Father... And the advocate with the Father is he who is righteous, Jesus Christ. And this matters because of what Christ did and does. And so what did Christ do and what does he do? do, And what, I get tied up in my words. What did he do and what does he continue to do? Notice verse 2. He himself... Is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. He himself is the propitiation for our sins. What is the propitiation? What is a propitiation? We don't hear that word very often, do we? When's the last time you used it? (laughs) Probably not very often. Maybe not ever. But a word like that is very important. It's important for us to understand. Um, The concept actually appears in the New Testament only four times. Only four times. Twice in this little letter of 1 John. So it appears here in 1 John 2.2. It also appears in 1 John 4, verse 10. It also appears in Romans chapter 3 and verse 25. It also appears in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 17. And it's used the same way every time. Look up those references when you have time. But the concept is actually rooted in the Old Testament. It's rooted in the Old Testament sacrificial system. And the word speaks about a sacrifice that accomplishes a couple of things. The word propitiation speaks of a sacrifice that both pays the penalty for sin and turns away wrath because of our sin. Another way to put it would be to say it like this. A propitiatory sacrifice is a sacrifice that satisfies and that averts. It satisfies and it averts. You see, our problem is that we sin, right? And Romans 3.23 says that all have sinned and come short of God's glory. And Our other problem is sin has a penalty. It's death. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. Sin has a penalty. And not only does sin have a penalty, but the response from God, from heaven, over sin, because he's righteous and holy and just and good, is wrath. It's wrath. 
And so Paul says in Romans chapter 1 and verse 18, for the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness and ungodliness of people who hold or suppress the truth and unrighteousness. So that's a big problem. Our problem is we sin. Sin brings death. Sin brings the wrath of God. We need a remedy that's going to take care of the death problem, which is the result of sin. We need a remedy that's going to take care of the wrath problem, which comes from God because of our sin, because we break his law. And sin is lawlessness, John says. And so here's God's remedy. Keep your finger here and look at 1 John chapter 4. In the 10th verse, this same word is used. Propitiation. And here's what the scripture says. In this is love. Not that we loved God. But that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. In this is love. Not that we loved God. Because we didn't. But that he loved us. Because he does. And sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. God loved us and loves us so much that he provided a sacrifice that would satisfy and that would avert. He provided a sacrifice out of his loving heart that would satisfy his law, satisfy his righteousness, satisfy his holiness. And that would remove his wrath from us. That's what he did. And that's what the sacrifice of Christ did and continues to do. So what Jesus did was to be the sacrifice. What he does now is that he advocates for us, Christians, so that if we sin, we are secure in our salvation and safe from God's wrath. Sometimes a Christian, well, sometimes I've asked people, Christians, so if you sin or you fall into a sin pattern, um, is God mad at you now? And are there certain things you have to do to appease him so he won't be mad at you anymore? And you know, it's so interesting, brothers and sisters, so many Christians will actually say, well, yeah, if I do commit a sin, or if I walk in sin for a while as a Christian, sure, God gets upset with me. And so, sure, he's mad at me. And sure, I've got to figure out a way to appease his wrath. And so then I ask, so what do you do to appease his wrath? Well, I guess I need to confess my sins, and that'll appease his wrath. Um, actually, any kind of answer like that's a wrong answer. <laughs> We don't have to appease God's wrath when we sin as Christians because God's wrath was appeased at the cross of Christ. Do you understand that? Then why do I need to confess? For the same reason that when I did something wrong against my mom, I needed to own it and admit it. Me doing something wrong against my mom or against my stepdad didn't change the fact that I was, I was her son and she was my mom. I was his stepson and he was my stepdad. The relationship wasn't affected. The only thing that was affected was the fellowship that we enjoyed before I blew it 
And that's why you confess. It's to maintain that relationship with the Father. It's really for, more for your sake and maintaining the relationship with the Father than it is that you've got to appease God's wrath. Listen, God's wrath was appeased on the cross 2,000 years ago. There's nothing you can do to carry out that work. And so Jesus advocates for us as Christians so that if we sin, we're secure in our salvation and safe from God's wrath. And let me put it another way. Another way to put it would be to call attention to the lyrics of a certain song. How many of you know the popular song, Before the Throne of God Above? You guys ever sing it here? Okay. Have you ever taken the time to go through those lyrics slowly and carefully and meditate on those lyrics when you're not singing it in worship? Well, if you take the time to meditate on those lyrics, what those lyrics are saying is exactly what John is teaching in 1 John chapter 2, verse 2. Actually, verse 1b and verse 2. And if you don't remember the lyrics, let me remind you of them. I love this song. I love this song. The first stanza starts, before the throne of God above, I have a strong, a perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love. Whoever lives and pleads for me. That's an advocate. Then the song goes on. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. No tongue can bid me thence depart. Nobody can make us leave God in Christ. That's what the first lyric is saying, isn't it? You remember the second stanza? This I love. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin because the sinless Savior died my sinful soul is counted free for God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me to look on him and pardon me that's what these verses are teaching that's what John's laying out that is good news indeed, brothers and sisters, Christians. It is this great truth that we, that you, are called to rest in. That's where we find soul rest. If you were to keep your heart with God, if you were to con cultivate consistent assurance of your salvation despite the fact that you trip up sometimes, that you do sin, then you have to rest in these truths about the finished work and the ongoing work of Christ on your behalf. These truths don't apply to non-Christians. They surely apply to Christians. And so, going back again to the three messages we've done from 1 John chapter 1, verse 9 through 1 John 2, verse 2, if we want to keep our hearts with God, then the three actions are confess, 
and resist and rest. And as we confess and as we resist and as we rest, our hearts will stay focused on God. And our assurance of salvation will be perpetuated. Very important truth. So let me shift gears for a second and address another group. Uh, as I said, these truths apply to Christians. They don't apply to non-Christians. Uh, they don't apply to unbelieving sinners. Let me put it another way. They apply to believing sinners. They don't apply, they don't apply to unbelieving sinners. A person who's a Christian and has faith in Christ is a believing sinner who happens to be called by God a saint. But an unbelieving sinner is just an unbelieving sinner. These truths don't apply. Um, why don't they apply? Well, C.H. Spurgeon once said that the difference between a Christian and an unbelieving sinner was like the difference between a swallow and a duck or a sheep and a swine. What did he mean by that? Well, if you happen to read the sermon that this appeared in, what you would find is this. That when it comes to water, a swallow may sometimes dip its wing in water, or it may swoop down and sip a little bit of water, but it doesn't stay in the water, and it's often soaring into the heights. But when a duck is in water, it's in its element. And a duck swims in the water and dives in the water. And it can live in the water because why? The water is its element. Same with sheep and swine. Sheep may fall into the mud and mire. And when they fall into the mud and mire, it makes them dirty. And a swine may fall into the mud and mire too. Here's the difference between a sheep and a swine. When a sheep falls into the mud and the mire... The sheep wants to get out. Or if it needs help, the shepherd gets it out. And it's soiled from the mud. But the mud's not its element. It tends not to go back to the mud. Even though it may fall in again, but it's going to get out again. And the mud's not its element. What happens when a swine falls into the mud? It wallows in it. It stays in it. It lives in it. Why? Because the mud is its element. Like water is the element of a duck. And the mud and the mire is the element of a swine. Sin is the element of an unbelieving sinner. And an unbelieving sinner stays in it. Lives in it. Wallows in it. All the time. Every day. Are you a swallow or a sheep? Or are you a duck and a swine? What's your relationship to sin? The Christian is called to rest in these great truths. But the unbelieving sinner is called to another R word. Repent. Repent and believe. Repent and believe. And if you find yourself not in Jesus Christ this morning... It's not enough for you to sing the Christmas songs. It's not enough for you to give the gifts. It's not enough for you to celebrate the birth of the Christ child. It's not enough for you to remember the holiday, no matter how much you remember it and how much you celebrate it. 
Because unfortunately, if you're an unbelieving sinner, the coming of the Christ child has not affected you or helped you one bit. Except that it provided the way for you to be forgiven, saved, and to have God's wrath turned aside from your account. And so believe on the Lord Jesus Christ if you're not a follower of Christ. And then the truths that we talked about this morning for those that are our Christ will become yours as well. So I'm going to ask you to join me. Let's pray and ask the Lord to seal his words to our hearts and then I'll have the benediction. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you. We want to thank you that especially as we enter this Christmas season and as we celebrate the birth of your son, Jesus Christ, that those of us who are Christians belong to you. You, through your spirit, have given us a realistic view of our sin so that we can own it and confess it. You give us the power and the Holy Spirit to resist, to fight against it. And you have provided for us an advocate, righteous Jesus Christ, who advocates for us when we do sin so that our relationship with you is not in jeopardy. And because your wrath was turned aside, we never have to fear your wrath against us again because Christ absorbed it on the cross. We pray that you would help us during this Christmas season just to rejoice in those great truths and to share those great truths as much as we possibly can, even as we celebrate the birth of your son. And then, Father, I want to pray if there's any in the auditorium that are not Christians, they've never been born again, they've never realized that their sins separate between them and you, the God of the universe, that you would use what was spoken and use what was sown to turn their hearts to you so that they repent, so that they can rest in the finished work of Christ. Please grant that. Please grant that. Please grant that, we pray. And then go with us through the day. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I would like to close us with some verses from the end of Jude's letter. For all of us who are believers today, for the church, these are wonderful words to close our time this morning. Jude closed his little one-chapter letter with these words, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful day in the Lord.